Cinema Duel, a podcast where my friend Chris and myself, John, talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing okay. It's a beautiful spring afternoon. Uh, we're still quarantined, but uh, things are looking to sort of be coming around the curve a little bit, at least here in New York. How about you, John? How are you doing? Well, I... In the last episode, I joked about how I'd feel silly if uh, it got worse between the time of our recording and the time of its release. And technically, I don't have a job anymore. Uh, So that's not great. Uh, But I don't know. I feel like the sort of the in the red, everything is just super anxiety. Like that stuff is is dulled and muted for a bit. I feel like we're kind of like settling into whatever this is for a little bit. So... I wouldn't I wouldn't say that things have improved, but more just that we've adjusted to the badness, I suppose. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I, I in no way want to uh, diminish uh, the impact that COVID-19 and, and, and the virus is is uh, doing to to anyone. So I, I think when I say we're, we're coming around the, the curve of it, we're in we're in pretty much the same boat, at least from a family perspective. Um, and that's part of the reason why, uh, to jump right into today's episode, um, I went and chose the topic that I did, uh, which is comfort films. Uh, after our last episode with, uh, Ag- Agnes Varda, um, uh, I needed uh, a little bit of a come down, something a little less heady, something a little bit more, um, easy to kind of slip into and take the um the 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 sting out of uh the current reality we're all facing so uh i was the one who kind of said hey why don't we jump in and just talk about um not necessarily our favorite film but you know a a film that just brings us comfort that that brings us a sense of peace a sense of fun something that that maybe we know so well that we can just slip into it like an old slipper or something like that so that's what we're talking about today john absolutely and i think that the star trek episode we did for me at least did some uh i think had some similar feelings around those vibes at least that's my own relationship to that but i do like the idea of us explicitly attacking that idea of um, of movies that we just watch because we have a like a, a grasp on them that is such that like we just we know inside and out. So um, I'm excited to uh, to chat with you as always, and uh, let's uh, why don't we get started with our first film? Coming home, coming home, sweetheart, darling, sweetheart, darling. Just my rifle, pony, and me. Just my rifle, my pony, and me. All right, so if you're not familiar with what just played, my pick is the 1959 John Wayne Western classic, Rio Bravo. Um, this is, to me, there are a couple things about why I picked this film. It, it's by no means my favorite film. Uh, it's probably not my favorite Western if I were to pick one, but it's, when I think of John Wayne and I think of growing up, um, I've talked time and time again on this podcast about my experiences watching older films with my father. Uh, John Wayne was one of my father's heroes, and it was one of the earliest kind of um, movie stars that he introduced me to that I immediately gravitated toward. Um, 
And Rio Bravo was at the top of the list for me as a kid for my favorite John Wayne films. Um, it's pretty much, if you think about it now or look at it now, it is one of the most classic kind of studio films you can think of back in the day. It's it's John Wayne basically playing John Wayne. Um, you have a young Angie Dickinson in her breakout role. You have Dean Martin uh, as the co-star. Uh, you also have Ricky Nelson. So, I mean, there's already a murderer's row of singing talent in this film. Ricky Nelson playing Colorado. You have Walter Brennan. Um, this is just a... I, I, I want to say just a classic Howard Hawks Western, but one of the things I want to talk about is how it kind of um, goes against the grain of what a classic Western should be. Um, but that's just in front of the camera. Behind the camera, you have the amazing Howard Hawks directing, uh, based on a story by... Um, his daughter, actually, um, a script by Leigh Brackett. Leigh Brackett, one of the most amazing screenwriters um, of the 40s and 50s and 60s. Uh, she's been behind some incredible films, um, some great Humphrey Bogart stuff as, as well. Editor's note, she wrote The Empire Strikes Back. Um, but what you have here is really... Nothing more than kind of showdown between good and evil. Uh, it is uh, John Wayne is the sheriff of this this town, Rio Bravo, and it opens up uh, in a beautiful, classic, almost silent way with the arresting of Joe Burdett, uh, the the young brother of Nathan Burdett, who's kind of the 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 town crime lord, uh, huge rancher, and he owns a ton of property, and he's the he's the big man around town. Um, and then it basically becomes a standoff between these two men as Nathan Burdett vows to get Joe Burdett out of prison and John T. Chance, one of the best classic Western names of all time, uh, John Wayne's character, has to sit it out until the marshals arrive uh, so that they can take Joe and uh, send him on his way. And if that plot sounds familiar, um, not only was it the inspiration um, for John Carpenter, uh, John Carpenter is a huge Howard Hawks fan, this was a the loose inspiration for not only Assault on Precinct 13, uh, but also the not nearly as good Ghost of Mars. Uh, but not only that, Howard Hawks kind of remade this movie a couple of times, most famously uh, a couple years later when he directed El Dorado, which is very similar in style, right down to one of the great things we'll, we'll talk about in this movie, Ricky Nelson playing the young sharpshooter Colorado in El Dorado. It's a guy named Mississippi, and it's played by James Caan. So it's really a very simple story, standoff between a sheriff and his his small crew and a big bad rancher who with you know 60 men um but the way that it goes about the movie is really interesting so before we kind of talk about some of those things john this is going to be an interesting counterpoint because the second film both you and i know pretty intimately but i think this might have been your first time actually seeing rio bravo so going in kind of I, I wanted to jump off with what were your what are your thoughts and experiences with westerns in general and then what did you think coming into rio bravo um i came into so i i westerns weren't a big part of growing uh, my movies watching growing up <clears throat> uh i would say that when i started uh this is going to sound weird, but uh, when I played Red Dead Redemption, uh, the first one, uh, I played through that whole game, and then I decided, you know what, I'd like to watch some Westerns. Maybe not 
like all of the westerns but i'd like to watch some and so i started watching some of the clint eastwood stuff and this was actually also around the time that i was starting to check out kurosawa as well um which you mentioned how the the this movie gets remade several times across over the years it that felt to me felt a bit similar to the way that a lot of kurosawa stuff gets filtered down through the years as well um often through westerns as uh, uh in particular um trying to put aside sort of my personal feelings about John Wayne's, let's say, outside of film acting uh, stuff aside, John Wayne seemed to me to be always sort of a like a a like he's a defined known quantity. Like that was not something that ever really crossed my path or when it did didn't seem to really have as much appeal for me. Um, the I would say that coming into this movie, in specific, uh, I think what I really like about it from a casting perspective is that it is a really large stacked cast so that even if there's some things about John Wayne that I'm ambivalent about, um, everyone else in this movie is incredibly well cast and I, and it, and it does have, it does lean into the other characters enough that I think that I'm able to, uh, enjoy the movie and 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 have fun and sort of stay with it and and uh and john wayne is sort of a the sort of stable presence throughout the thing is um is something i can handle if it, even if it's maybe not generally my cup of tea does that make sense yeah it does and that's an interesting thing um we we should talk about a little bit and that's there's a there's always the question now um we are uh we are a society that is right now in the midst of various conflicts with various people kind of separating right the the art from the artist um and it's something watching now i i haven't watched rio bravo in a couple of years um but um, I do know a lot more about John Wayne than I did when I was a young kid, kind of falling in love with his, with his persona. Um, um, and it's similar in some ways to kind of like Clint Eastwood. Once you kind of see their their particular leanings and how they may or may not align with yours, um, in the case of John Wayne, they certainly do not align with mine. Um, it takes a little bit um, out of the man, uh, to say the least. So one of the interesting things just to reinforce what you said coming into it, watching this time is how powerful the rest of the cast is. And I think that's an interesting thing that Hawks does. One of the things that I, I was reading about Rio Bravo is that, um, and this just, <laughs> if you don't like John Wayne now, you're not going to like him in a second. One of his things that he did with Hawks when kind of coming into this film was kind of putting, um, to bed some of the stuff that he hated about the movie High Noon. Um, he felt High Noon was just communist wishwashy bullshit. And he wanted to, you know, kind of show a man who didn't need help and he didn't go running to his wife to kind of, you know, save the day. Um, and what's interesting is that may have been the intent. Um, and Howard Hawks at first may have even gone along with it. But again, think about who's behind the story here. So um, the story is based on Real Bravo by B.H. McCampbell. B.H. McCampbell is actually Howard Hawks' daughter. Leigh Brackett, another woman, is is one of the top Hollywood screenwriters ever. Uh, and she put the screenplay in into this. So what you wind up having is 
for a guy who wanted to create a movie where he didn't need help from anyone because um, he was a man and he was going to do it his own way. He's a red-blooded American. The plot is pretty much about an old sheriff who's a little bit past his prime, who continues to insist he does not need anybody's help. But the only way that he gets out of the situation he is in is from the help of everyone who is, he says he doesn't. And that involves a woman, that involves a Mexican, that involves a cripple, that involves a drunk, that involves a kid. I mean, it involves pretty much every other type of person in this film um, going against his initial wishes uh, and helping him get through this particular ordeal. Uh, and it's something that really came through to me in, 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 in this viewing that it maybe didn't before. I'd always been the, you know, John T. Chance and, and his amazing chemistry and how he kind of holds himself and guides the rest of uh, the cast. But watching this viewing, uh, I came away with a ridiculous amount of respect for uh, not only Angie Dickinson, who I think just kills her role. Uh, I believe she won a Golden Globe when it came out. She is phenomenal in the in the role, um, as well as Dean Martin and, and Ricky Nelson, who they really take their time to develop these fully fleshed out characters that stand, whether you want to think so or not, they stand in opposition to John Wayne's character. And it makes for a much more involving experience for my mind. Yeah, this uh, this almost feels like you can read because I, I did see some of the stuff about the we want to make the anti high noon, um, which I haven't seen anti high noon except to think all I know about it is that John Wayne thinks it's a communist movie. Um, <laughs> it's an excellent film. Yep. It, it this almost feels like one of those cases where you can potentially watch it and read read things into it that actually potentially go against the author's intent. Um, Whereas sometimes it's fun to go like, what were they, what was the, what were they trying to say? And, you know, use behind the scenes information interviews or that kind of stuff to like put, try and put together, like uh, what are the themes of this movie and what's going on there? But another way you can also do that is being like, I think they may have tried to do this, but we can actually read it a different way. And I do think that like, there's a lot of cases where, you know, John Wayne's character does things in the movie. And I'm like, well, this is, he's just that like, he doesn't treat people especially well, especially the people who are supposed to be, you know, on his side and on his, you know, team, he's not especially treating them well, but like you can, you can have a movie where your protagonist is a piece of shit and it doesn't necessarily drag down the movie. Or if you read it as that, then, you know, there's ways to engage with it that, uh, uh, don't, leave you feeling as icky inside it's crazy about this film that despite his intent to make the anti-high noon there are so many little moments that deflate that and and turn it on its head um one of the things i want to talk about is, is just the structure of the film itself and how it kind of defies classic western structure um so so here's a film that um I, d I looked this up on the 2000, the last 2012 Sight and Sound, right? They do it every every 10 years. This was the second highest rated Western on the list, and it was in like the 60s somewhere. Um, so you would think it's a fairly representative kind of classic Western film. That being said, kind of think about the structure and, and the way this is done. This is a two and a half hour movie with not a lot of action. There are small moments of punctuation. 
But that's not really where the movie finds its rhythm and its cadence. It finds its rhythm and its cadence in the quieter moments and in the moments where the characters are interacting with each other and giving them the opportunity to kind of live in the role, um, which is not to say that the action is not sublime. This is this is the film where, um, as a kid, um, growing up in America, where, where at, at least for me and, and my region and my upbringing, the Western was a, a classic institution. You grow up playing for, you know, because you don't know any better, you're playing cowboys and Indians, you're, you're, you're reenacting those things. And uh, one of the earliest kind of action movie moments that I remember just dreaming about and wanting to emulate um, it's not Star Wars, it's Rio Bravo, and it's the incredible sequence where um, Dean Martin and John Wayne, dude and, and Chance, they, they call Dean Martin dude, uh, they are patrolling, uh, one of their friends is shot and killed, they're chasing him down, he runs through like some mud and goes into a bar, and dude goes in the front door to find the guy with the muddy boots. Um and it's, it's, it's an incredible tense sequence because it's set up much earlier that dude is a drunk and has the respect of no one. There's an amazing, like I said, silent sequence in the beginning where he's basically begging for a drink and a guy throws a silver dollar in a spittoon to make him fish it out if he wants the drink. Uh, so he's again confronted with these people and he can't find the guy with, with muddy boots. And his confidence starts to crumble and the people in the saloon start to kind of mock him and another coin is thrown. And it's at that moment, um, without getting into spoilers, he sees something uh, that lets him know that the, the murderer is there and basically just spins around and takes him out with one shot. And it's it's a moment that is embedded indelibly in my brain and I have replayed it millions of times as a kid uh, even playing like guns with my son and stuff when we're running around I will have this moment and this look and this quick draw action in my head it is a it is a beautifully shot ac action sequence because not only is it cool and badass but it ties into characters so well particularly Dean Martin's character and how great he is as dude um, that it, it it's something that can't be lost for me absolutely I think and before I uh, just a quick side note uh, anytime John Wayne says the word dude I just go back to the big Lebowski because <laughs> every other every person that's not you know, used to dealing with the dude. Every time they have to say dude, it just feels like they say it with such distaste. It's like there's something stuck in their throats. It's like, I hate having to say the word dude. And John Wayne has that vibe too of just like, I can't believe I have to say the word dude that many times. <laughs> <laughs> the only person who it sounds great coming out of is uh, Stumpy, played by Walter Brennan. Just such a great, uh, he's just got that dude. He just gets it high up as, as, as high as he can. And I, I laugh every time he talks. Stumpy feels like the, like a living embodiment of a cliche not that he is cliched himself but like he is the urtext from which everything like every time you see someone doing a parody of a western there's got to be someone doing a stumpy oh i'm an old man with a high voice yeah and and they're all emulating walter brennan i mean that that's where this came from um and if you ever want to see um uh, I'll, I'll throw this out as a quick early recommendation if you ever want to see walter brennan kind of play a very different role, but kind of use that voice. Watch Treasures of the Sierra Madre with Humphrey Bogart, directed by John Huston. Um, it is a killer performance. It is filled with pain uh, and with, with with turmoil, but it's it's Walter Brennan and it's that voice and it's that character and it's 
the 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 levels he's able to ring out with that kind of persona is phenomenal. Here he's doing something much different. He is the comedic relief because um, you've got the young you know, heartthrob played by, by Ricky Nelson. You've got the older heartthrob played by Dean Martin. You, you've got John Wayne as the icon. So you need someone to, you know, let loose the steam a little bit. And, and, and Stumpy does that, but he also has his moments where there's real pain and there's real kind of, you know, pathos involved in why he is the way he is. You learn that, you know, he's crippled and he's hurt and he suffered a devastating loss to Nathan Burdett. And that's why there's animosity there. There's a sequence where he almost mistakenly kills dude. And uh, any other film could have taken the cheap way out and taken this sequence, which is really dude gets kind of cleaned up. He's been a drunk for a while. He gets himself cleaned up. He's on the wagon, gets a shower, shaves, gets new clothes. He walks back to the jail. Stumpy doesn't recognize him, almost blows his head off. Any other film would have played that as kind of a wah, wah, wah kind of joke. And, you know, the scene ends. This movie takes like additional five or ten minutes to have dude flip out over almost getting shot, start to lose his confidence and his nerves. And this incredible sequence plays out where is he going to go back? You know, is he going to fall off the wagon? Is he going to stick to his guns? What about Stumpy? Stumpy is terrified and he plays that so well. You know, he's screaming and yelling, damn, damn it, I didn't know that, you know, he's going to be you. And, you know, you this is a great moment where John Wayne can play that iconic role and kind of call out. He's screaming like that because he's terrified. He almost killed you. And it, it plays so much differently than almost any other film would have taken that. And it's those moments that pile on top of one another. It's the way that Angie Dickinson can't wrap her head around her attraction for John T. Chance. It's well, neither can I, to be fair. <laughs> well, yeah, we got, we'll, we'll talk about Angie Dickinson for a couple of moments too, but uh, it's the way that Ricky Nelson constantly kind of picks and chooses when he's going to dive in and when he's not and how he ultimately commits and what that, that means. And it, it, there's, there are moments where Dean Martin sees Ricky Nelson as the young upstart and, you know, and what use is he when there's a younger kid who's faster and sober and, those are the moments that make Rio Bravo what it is more so than the rough and tumble, you know, well, Pilgrim get out of my town shtick that John Wayne has in the film. Yeah. Let's, uh, I think my big takeaway from this was, uh, I mean, not, not to make this an, a anti John Wayne thing. Cause we already covered that, but if to make this more of a prone D Martin thing, why isn't Dean Martin the lead of this movie? <laughs> like it, th- th- this got me thinking and, and, about and I, I guess I could have googled this but it got me thinking about like where is Dean Martin in his career at this point when he makes this movie that he would like sure in westerns John Wayne's is probably has to be the top of the heap um but you know D- Dean Martin is himself uh you know someone that you know I see a lot of infomercials for late at night when I was a kid you know selling old greatest hits albums and stuff like right and so it seems wild to me like the and the first time I watched it I like I went to get I think a beer when I was watching the opening credits so I didn't see his name there and then halfway through the movie I was like I think that's Dean Martin and then I googled it and sure enough it was like he was really good but also not 
what I think of when I think of Dean Martin. And it's interesting to me that like, it's a great performance, but also like, why is he second fiddle in this movie? He is incredible. So where is he career wise here? So it's interesting to know a year later, he does oceans 11 with Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis jr. Right. And, and all those guys. So this is, this is post the duo partnership with um, Jerry Lewis. Um, he's getting a little bit older in years. He, he's focusing more on kind of the, 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 the rat pack persona that he's cultivated for himself. Um, but I, I think this role is the smart role for Dean Martin because again, this is not going to be a pile on for John Wayne. Cause I, I still have a lot of fondness for his <laughs> movies, if not for the person himself. Right. Um, John Wayne is, I don't want to say he's a one dimensional person. He's made some films that are very different. Um, and he uses that persona to good effect in, 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 in different ways. Um, particularly Red River, if you ever see Red River or some of his earlier John, John Ford films, but, uh, Dean Martin, just, he's more of an actor and looking at the roles again, John T is basically just the, he's the sheriff who's got to bring the guy in. There's, there's no real arc to him except that oh at the end he needs his friends but it almost happens begrudgingly the arc of dude is phenomenal that's where the role is i mean dean martin whether not that there was ever a chance that anyone but john wayne was going to play the lead but dean martin got the best role in the film absolutely he got the role with the arc he got the role with the best action sequence he 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 got everything that he could have got he even got shaved by angie dickinson i mean it, for me he literally got the best parts of this entire movie <laughs> things seem to have worked out well for him yeah yeah i i i think he's he's great and then he also gets to of course feature his incredible voice with my rifle my pony and me which i think once you hear it you will never unhear it uh it, it's such a wonderful moment just kind of Again, if you're used to newer films and you're just like, why would they ever stop to sing not one, but two songs in a two and a half hour already potentially bloated movie? But uh, I wouldn't change that sequence for the world. I love my rifle, my pony and me. I love the way Ricky Nelson comes in and harmonizes and then uh, jumps into get along home, Cindy, Cindy. It's 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 great. And it's it's particularly great when. Uh, if if you grew up watching The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet and you know who Ricky Nelson is, um, even if you knew him as just kind of the, the teen heartthrob at the time, even if you know him as the person who birthed, uh, who sired Matthew and Gunnar Nelson and, and, and did that debacle, um, Ricky Nelson is great in this 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 movie he's quiet and laconic uh he doesn't overplay the heartthrob piece too much there's no romantic interest for him uh he's just a good kid who's super good with the gun and just wants to do right and between him and dude for me those were my kind of like those were my touchstones of man i want to be as cool as colorado i want to be as i i, I want to be able to shoot like the dude and be able to take care of business and uh uh it, it still hits me when i watch it at you know 47 years old right and and as far like and then to extend the sort of like characters in the movie that we like the um <clears throat> if we want to talk about angie dickinson like she Again, her weird fixation on John Wayne aside, um, like she is her, like she is, she's 
obviously attractive um but she's like she's also capable competent like she 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 takes matters into her own hands even over against john wayne's like she goes and protects him when he's sleeping uh, even though he protests after the fact like she's she has agency she makes decisions she's cool like it's like again you go down and through the the supporting cast of this film like every, like there's a there's a there's a lot of really good stuff in there out of all the leading ladies that john wayne has had and again i've seen dozens of john wayne films i mean um the 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 quintessential leading lady if you've ever seen any of the films that they've been in together is maureen o'hara the fiery irish redhead um but in so many of those films as fiery and irish and independent as she is um john wayne usually gets the upper hand at the end if you've ever seen mcclintock it's a it's a movie i love to pieces but i cannot watch without kind of wincing because man is the ending problematic as funny as it is it's a 20 minute sequence where he tries to spank her uh and it's it's (laughs) and it is just look it, it it's got problems um so it's so interesting to see angie dickinson and this is like her she's at the very start of her career and how not only does she totally hold her own against John Wayne and without getting too far into it, she is so lovely and beautiful in this film that it, it, it hurts to look at her sometimes. And some of that is just purely physical. I mean, she is physically unbelievable in my eyes. She kind of turns me to jelly, but it's her attitude. Uh, she, John Wayne never has the upper hand on her once in this film, even though she kind of fawns over him and, and she gets so totally flustered that she starts to talk a thousand miles a minute and, uh, and, and, and can't, you know, come out and say straight what she wants to say. She never once lets him get anything over on her. She rules the relationship. She acts uh, with her own agency despite anything he says to her. She never once is subservient to him. Um, and it's and it's, it's it's an incredible fiery performance. A lot of it um, inspired by and referenced back to, uh, I'm going to keep going back to Humphrey Bogart because he is kind of my my hero of of that era but uh uh very much back to lauren bacall into have and have not right down to uh the wonderful sequence where she kisses him he doesn't kiss her back she does it again and he finally kisses her and he goes yeah see it's even better when two people do it uh which is a direct call back to what lauren bacall says to humphrey bogart in to have and have not uh there are these little moments uh, that she takes but she makes it so much her own. Uh, I, I'm just going to just keep going on and sputtering because, uh, when I watch this, uh, for the two hours and 26 minutes that it's on, I am absolutely head over heels in love with Angie Dickinson. That's fair. Well, and speaking of the two hours and 26 minutes of it all, uh, I think that your, your comment about the, the, the singing being like an interesting choice in a potentially bloated movie like i do like that it's there it does feel like hey we've got a couple of well-known crooners we can like let's use that to our advantage i i wouldn't complain about that and also the 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 fleshing out of characters taking more time to do that um is something that uh i can appreciate for sure um i think that i i won't lie I think I, in both times I watched it, I, I started to, um, my focus started to wane a bit. Um, <laughs> a thing that helps with that though, is I do like, although I don't 
haven't watched as many of them. I just I like the 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 design, like just the the old west of it all. The 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 look, the sets, the costume design, the fact that it's shot on film. Like this, actually, when I was watching it, I thought of uh, all the old west stuff from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, both yeah. both from the like both from the stuff when they're in the scene and you're watching the like and both when they're so when they pull back and are just sort of filming it on sets or when they go to the 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 Manson ranch uh in that movie um looking at this movie going like man this would just be a cool place to be even if it's just a like you know a lot somewhere in Arizona which I think is where they shot this one yeah Tucson yeah, yeah. so the but just I I like the the costumes and the sets it's just like this is really cool even if you know it could be trimmed a bit yeah, it's definitely bloated. It's a long movie. And I think one of the reasons why it's a comfort film for me is, again, right? So um, I'm not going to – I'll definitely not argue the fact that it's 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 a little bloated. It's a little overlong. Um, but because it's a film that I grew up with and know so intimately, the time of it for me, which is why it's it's my comfort film and not yours, is that um, it, it it's that that's that's just more time for me to kind of live in the past a little bit and and live in. Um, when did I probably see this? Probably 1979, uh, and, and just remember what it was like on those days, kind of in the basement in, in the house with my dad on these terribly uncomfortable couches with corduroy pillows, watching these things on, on it, it, it's funny. I watched this on a 60 inch kind of widescreen TV screen back then. I probably watched it on a 13 inch screen, right? Like an old CRT tube. And, and, but it was larger than life to me then. And when I watch it now, I immediately feel like that little kid again. And I, I think for that, if no other reason, it's, it's one of my quintessential comfort films. Our second movie for this episode is 1987's The Princess Bride, directed by Rob Reiner and starring just a fucking spectacular cast uh, that we'll talk about probably at length uh, for most of this uh, duration. Uh, this is my pick, and this is a movie that I think, not not to make this an, an age thing, but I know that this is a common experience talking to people who are around my age, that this was a movie that you watched on VHS, and then you just kept watching it over and over, either through your family or through your school. I know that there's at least one friend of mine who is unfortunately recovering from surgery and hates The Princess Bride at this moment. So, <gasps> Aubrey, if you're listening, I apologize to put you through this. But Well, hopefully the surgery corrected that. <laughs> You know, I'm no doctor. I couldn't tell you either way. Um, but but I think that this movie is one that, like this, although it doesn't fit into some of the genre stuff that I usually go into, it's another movie that we had on VHS as a kid. We would just watch it every now and then. And at a certain point, I just have the whole thing memorized front to back. Um, the, the cast is amazing. The performances are 
uh, or the the dialogue is just incredible. The and the, the things where it feels a bit like even in the parts where it's not like a hundred percent on fire as it used to be, it's not. It's rarely feels bad. It's just like oh, that's kind of quaint and cute. Um, but yeah, that's uh, before we launch into sort of uh, thoughts around it. Chris, uh, what's your take on the Princess Bride? So let me tell you, um, it, it's it's funny that you mentioned kind of like um, people in your age bracket because it is it is no secret I am a fair amount older than you. Um, and when I was talking to my wife um, about a week ago, and I said, "Hey, look, you know, I, I need to watch a couple of movies. We're doing comfort films for the next episode." She's just without even a beat. She said, "Well, I hope you're picking Princess Bride because that is her favorite film of all time." I retract my um, statement. <laughs> it is immediately um, and it's a film that I also love as well so um, my experience with the film I know it very well um, I remember when it came out in the theater um, I remember probably my my closest memory of the film weirdly enough is being in college this would be um, I was with my wife at the time so sh- this would be 92 or 93 um, we went to kind of a warehouse where they were getting rid of DV, uh, VHS cassettes. Uh, there's a huge warehouse and it was like three bucks, you know, pick your, pick whatever you want. And we stayed there for two hours cause my wife had to s- scour every single shelf until she found a clamshell VHS of the princess bride. So we can go home, throw it into the D- in, in, into the, the VCR and watch it. So um, it's a film I know very, very well. You and I both, I believe, are Criterion Edition owners of the film. It's true. Uh, so, uh, you know, if, if I'm shelling out, you know, enough for a Criterion version of the release, it's pretty easy to say that I'm a fan of the film. So, John, for the five or six people that may not know what The Princess Bride is, what is this movie about? <laughs> this is a movie that is an adaptation uh, of a book called also called The Princess Bride by William Goldman. He did the uh, screenplay for the movie as well. As he was coming up with the sequences and the characters that he wanted to, he, he was starting to put things together, but was struggling to have how he would put all like connect all these sequences together. And then that's when sort of the, the, the big idea for the book happened, which is that he was going to call it his abridged version. Uh, so that way he could only tell the good parts of the story that he wants to tell. Um, and so by, and so he's like, well, yes, this, there's a, there's an unabridged version that exists. Uh, but my dad told me just the good parts. And so that's what I'm writing. That's the version I'm giving to you. Of course, that's complete bullshit. There is no unabridged version. And, um, but with the way they translate the, uh, the, the meta structure of the book is to basically make it so that is to incorporate the, oh, my father told me this, uh, my grandfather told my father this story, my father told me this story, but basically making the movie about Peter Falk as a older grandfather coming in to visit his sick uh, grandson played by a young Fred Savage, and he's going to read him a story, and that story is called The Princess Bride. And they, let's, yeah. Can we stop there for a second? Because right there... There is, it's just one example of the brilliance of the film and how in a split second 
it imbues so much more emotional heft that you may not realize at first. So beyond the fact that we'll have to talk about Peter Falk and how amazing Peter Falk is in every film, but in especially this film. It's that very line that you just said. My grandfather told it to my father. My father told it to me, and now I'm telling it to you. Which begs the question of where uh, the, the kid is played by Fred Savage of, of The Wonder Years. It immediately sets off, well, where's this kid's father that this kid's father's not telling him the story? It's completely unspoken. It's never talked to again. But there is, whether you key in it or not, an emotional heft in just the way that that sentence is phrased. That the father is missing, the father is not there. And that's why the grandfather is coming in to tell the story. And that is such an amazing example of economy of storytelling that is... It is the bread and butter of William Goldman. We, we should just briefly mention William Goldman is one of the fucking greatest screenwriters of all time. This is the guy who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, among many, many other things. Um, and the way that he's able to take a sentence and just by what he says, give you so much backstory that doesn't do anything to the film, but just enhances your perception of it, or at least specifically for me, enhanced my perception of it. Uh, it's just one split second that makes this movie absolute gold. I guess in this murderer's row, like who, like who are your favorites? I guess like, like, like there, we could talk about any of these people at length, it's, but like, yeah, who, who, it's, it's, it, I mean, is it even a question? <laughs> is it even a question? Goddamn Mandy Patinkin. Yeah. Uh, who you to look at one of the things I uh, watching it last night with my wife and my son, we were watching through it, and my wife loves Carrie Elways as Wesley. Um, the movie is the personification for a young boy with wish fulfillment. You know, it's a young farm boy who becomes the dread pirate Roberts, who then becomes, you know, the, 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 the dashing hero who's going to save the, the princess. But, um, Watching it through, I, I even got this out out of my wife. Manny Patinkin is a <laughs> he is he is a heartthrob. He mm -hmm. is first of all <laughs> drop dead gorgeous in this movie. Uh, he has a, again just like Dude in Rio Bravo. He has the arc uh, where Wesley is always Wesley, and and he he undergoes. A, a, a change from young farm boy, as you wish to, you know, Dread Pirate Roberts to Wesley, the dashing hero. But it, it's really, um, it's, it's really Mandy Patinkin um, as Inigo Montoya, who, who steals the movie every single second. And one of the things that the Princess Bride does really well um, and is personified in Mandy Patinkin's performance is it is very, whimsical and it's very romantic um mark knopfler who did did the music the the theme song you know this is a storybook story this is this is a story this is a a storybook this is that's very much what this is uh in the way that it's played and and rob reiner who i don't love as much as other people do he knocks it out of the park with the way he films it he films it like a children's story it's not high adventure it's not lord of the rings realism it's a storybook fantasy um and for the most part everybody plays it like a storybook fantasy except when it gets serious and when it gets serious for mandy patinkin when he talks about what happened to his father when he talks about the scars that he gets those moments are played with so much gravitas that it turns the movie on a dime uh, into this completely different mood that you would not buy normally because of the tonal shift except that Manny Batinkin sells it like a motherfucker it is he is hands down the MVP of this movie and I will fight anybody who says otherwise 
you know, so then I won't say otherwise, but then, uh, except to say, I don't agree. make me break quarantine and go those thousands of miles to get up there. Uh, I will a hundred percent agree. And then let's also talk about other wonderful things like motherfucking Wallace Shawn. Uh, oh. Let's talk about him. It's inconceivable that we don't talk about Wallace Shawn as Vassini. <laughs> and, and and actually, when you think about it, even his best line is actually a Mandy Patinkin line, which is, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but Wallace Shawn does the same thing. Um, it, it's harder for him to pull off because he's Wallace Shawn. I mean, and there's a physical... There's a physical thing with him that just lends itself more to the comedic. And he's doing the lisp, which he doesn't normally have. Um, but uh, he has moments where he breaks and gets very serious, where he tries to play very threatening to Princess Buttercup. Um, and for you know a, a little short, bald, lisping guy, he sells it because he's just the consummate actor. He knows how to play to a camera and he knows how to play to a per performance. Um, and one of the probably biggest and I use that pun intended, one of the biggest surprises is how great Andre the Giant is in this this movie. It uh, It is absolutely mind-boggling. And, and for me, like probably the most painful um, experience watching the movie is just sort of reflecting on like what what kind of film career were we potentially yeah. denied by his passing not long after like he i don't think he did he get to do anything else after this or was it just this? i one? think he did one no he did one or two he did another movie with with billy crystal i thought i don't remember uh but uh i don't think he was ever used if he was used the way that rob reiner used him here um i mean it's a bit of a stereotype to have the gentle giant but uh, again they give him enough time to craft an entire character with the with the jokes and the rhymes and just the the loving touch he has with with Manny Patinkin and 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 how he <laughs> one of my favorite like I mean there are so many quotable lines but the end of the movie where he finds the four horses you know just in case they find the lady he looks up and he says hello lady hello lady it's, it's, it's it might be one of my favorite kind of verbal deliveries in the film. Absolutely. Well, and apparently he was like, apparently they had to like really like work on getting his timing up to a place where it sort of fits with the rest of the film. But like, it just feels a hundred percent natural. It, it works. It, does. And it, it feels like the, it, I would actually go so far as to say like, I'm sure like all of the, like the whole cast is, is great. And they all, they've all had, you know, interesting careers. I would be curious if I went through the filmographies of each of the actors here, if any of them have movies that I like more than uh, Princess Bride. Again, this this drives down to the definition of a comfort film. Uh, there are probably better films that have been made. So just looking at the cast, um, Peter Falk. I mean, Peter Falk has yeah. been in some great movies, right? Let, I mean he's he's one of the best things even though he's barely in he's one of the best things about vim vendor's um wings of desire fucking billy crystal like billy crystal right but those might be better films but i don't know that they're more enjoyable performances right there's something about the princess bride that um i don't think all of it's perfect but it's just so comfortable. You slip into it so seamlessly. You remember those um, those those quotes. You remember how what other movie could basically just have Billy Crystal playing Billy Crystal? Uh, 
and and have it work in in such a different genre you know his the whole section with him as miracle max and and uh, carol kane as his his wife they're basically doing like borscht belt you know catskills comedy and it works seamlessly in the flow of this storybook fantasy film and it's like a single scene too like a lot of them the stuff that you like even uh even while sean he's the antagonist up until he dies, but like, he's not in as much of the movie as you remember. And Billy Crystal and Carol Kane are only in the one scene. Like people just are constantly like showing up for like little tiny slices and just absolutely blowing out of the park. Um, If you want to talk about the not perfection of this movie, there is something that there is one thing that has bothered me in recent years as I've started to watch it. Um, and it's not enough to break it, but when, but after Wesley rescues Buttercup from Vicini, and before she pushes him down the hill, he kind of doesn't exactly treat her well. <laughs> he kind of says some uh, unkind things to her. He does, and he does. And I've been trying to figure out anytime I watch it, like, is he just trying to like, is the is the film really trying to? have him like are you supposed to think that he's still the the pirates like are you not supposed to know that it's wesley or are you supposed to think that it's wesley like working like that he has some grudges that he acts that she didn't actually wait for him because that doesn't seem it seems out of character that he'd be like i actually think it's bad that you went on to marry someone even though you didn't have any control over it and also you thought i was dead so let me throw this at you um so first of all, the whole point of his behavior to her from a pure mechanic. I mean, yeah, she has to put him down the hill. Like that's the it's, 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 for him to, it's for her to push him down the hill, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. all purely mechanical thing. Um, I I do. I'll. So this this kind of leads into where I think the weak points of the movie are. You are expected to realize it's him. And I think you are expected to kind of be like, he's kind of pissed. He doesn't understand. Like, he told her to wait. She didn't wait. He's mad at her. He's still going to save her, but he's mad at her. And, you know, and then, of course, setting up the wonderful as as you wish payoff and then have her realize. Um, but it gets to kind of the weak points of the film. And it might be sacrilege for me to say this, but Carrie Elways is one of the weaker points of the film. He's great when he's the farm boy. He's great in his action moments. Uh, if the I mean, there's no point even going over the sword fight between between him and Diego Montoya with I'm not left-handed, I'm not left-handed either because it is amazing and it's one of the best sequences in modern history to me. I just love it so much, not only for its execution, but for how much it is of a piece of the past that I grew up falling in love with. So set those aside. Um, The rest of the movie with him, he doesn't do it for me. He really doesn't. He has a couple of funny moments and uh, he's got some great physical comedy. I was surprised this time as how funny he was as he's coming out of his near death experience and how rubbery his body is throughout the second half of the movie. But when you play him against Manny Patinkin, against Andre the Giant, and even we haven't talked about him yet, but Chris Sarandon is hilarious in this movie. Oh, fuck, he's awesome. Carrie always is the weak link in the chain as good as he is and I, I i remember kind of loving him at the time and then hearing he was going to be cast as robin hood for mel brooks's robin hood and i was like what a great idea and then that movie was so terrible and i and i get that he you know played it the way mel brooks wanted him to play it but it just 
it limited him in a way that I kind of never got over with Carrie Elways. I will set aside your uh, blasphemy against Robin Hood men in tights. Uh, oh my goodness, sir. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, Wait until we do the Mel Brooks episode because you have to now pick that one so we can <laughs> we can argue. It. I'm sorry, my Mel Brooks pick is going to be Spaceballs and it can only be Spaceballs. Um, <clears throat> I think something that is interesting, um, not that we could have planned this, but an interesting parallel to Rio Bravo, which I think you may have alluded to earlier, is that, yeah, I, I do actually think that the the leads of the movie um, end up being, like, you need you need sort of a stabilizing presence, and they're not ever bad, but in both movies- You need movies, them to move the, the support- plot from beginning to end. But the right. but the supporting cast ends up, be, in both movies, ends up being the thing that sort of makes totally. the whole thing worthwhile. Um the yeah chris sarandon man he's i i i for me actually i think if we're talking weak points i think christopher guest i think his sort of like cold underplaying of the character sometimes gets overshadowed and i can't tell if that's meant to be like you need you can't have everyone be billy crystal but like it's i i have have a hard time placing where his i think it's intentional but I can't tell if it's meant to be like, no, he has to sort of be more reserved than everyone else. Yeah, no, it's it's probably intentional, but he is completely overwhelmed by everybody else in the film to the point where he really doesn't leave an impact yeah. in the movie. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, when I realized that the like I realized that, of course, he's there because the Spinal Tap connection. Right. So, like, of course, apparently Rob Reiner at one point talked about wanting him in in all of his movies. I don't know if that ended up happening or not, but um, but Chris. Chris Sarandon as Prince Humperdinck is absolutely glorious as the, you know, pompous, full of himself piece of shit. Like I love when he's on the hunt for uh, Princess Buttercup and he gets every single one of his predictions is correct, despite the fact that there's no possible way that he could have known those things. He just gets completely lucky. And the movie doesn't try and make you think otherwise. You know that he's full of shit, but he just somehow ends up being right. A giant fell here. <laughs> he smells oh, so great. He smells the odorless iocane, and, yeah. and it's like, ah, I know this is iocane. I'm like, iocane powder. I'd bet my life on it. Every line that he delivers is gold. No one delivers lines like he does in this movie. And then at the end, when he gets, when he loses, right, uh, a battle to the death. No, a battle to the pain. And that sequence is so stupid. Except that Chris Sarandon plays it so beautifully that I forgive how dumb the things that Carrie always is saying. Like, I don't buy it for a second. That just sounds stupid. But the fact that Chris Sarandon also thinks it sounds stupid is what makes that sequence brilliant. It, it, it totally rests on his shoulders and he carries it. Well, for sure. Like, the big, the big, uh, big final sequence of the movie, uh, like Carrie Elwes is half dead. Like he, he literally just gets carried into the whole thing and then manages to like trick Chris Sarandon into surrendering. Like that's, that's, that's a nice subversion of the whole like dashing hero stuff. Right. And, 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 and even when Chris Sarandon realizes it, he's so happy that he wasn't fooled. (laughs) There's just that. I knew he was bluffing. (laughs) <laughs> the way he so quickly jumps into the chair, like, okay, I'm out. He jumped in the chair to get tied up. It's it's great. It's such a great performance. You know, I was thinking about, again, like trying to take, again, my history with this movie is taking it as mostly as a whole piece and not trying to like dissect it 
with too much. But as I was thinking about it this time, the the way that this movie, the magic trick of this movie, I think, is to be both a comedy and both its comedic elements and its sincerity sort of combined together. Um, like there'll be movies that come in like the early two thousands, like Shrek, where it's like we're doing a fairy tale, but we're gonna make fun of it. Um, and uh, there's uh, sort of like ironic takes on established stories to make fun of stuff. And I think that there's there's fun to be had. There's commentary. There's uh, you know the there's you know that's what this movie is has for it going in spades. But it never feels it never feels insincere in it. Like the, the, even though there's tons of jokes about how silly this whole thing is when, you know, at the end when he says the, you know, there's five kiss kisses in the history of the world that are the most pure. This, this one left them all behind. Even though this movie has been poking fun at a lot of tropes throughout the whole runtime, when they do that moment, which is a hundred, there's nothing, they, they, they earn it. They sell it. There's nothing that is like rings false about it. Or, or like standing at a distance it does a it manages to do both at the same time which is uh that is i think for me like if there's something I, like a, a new thing to learn is like wow they managed to do an incredibly hard thing which is to uh somehow meld irony and sincerity in a way that often without betraying sort of that that's what it's doing i guess yeah, that that sincerity, um, heart on its sleeve kind of uh, sense of the film is is so important to the Princess Bride success. And I think one of the reasons it lands as sincere as it does is because even though you're so wrapped up in those performances, you forget until the end, until the <laughs> amazing I will choke up every time I think about it ending you forget that this is a framing that there's a framing device to the movie and it's a grandfather reading a story to his sick son and if, if you forget the end if you forget the sincerity of the movie you just need to listen to the way Peter Falk says as you wish at the end of the film to have your heart completely just <laughs> explode with uh, with what this movie is trying to do it's it's one of the best endings uh, to a movie. It, and, it, and it, again, in those three words, it sums up the sincerity, hard on its sleeve approach that Rob Reiner and everyone else takes to the film. And it, it's what makes it not, not only a comfort film, you know, for, for, for me and my family as well, but it, it's an enduring classic. Absolutely. And since we haven't really had a chance much to, uh, I mean, we could talk, I mean, hell, I could talk about this movie for hours, but uh, <laughs> I think that something that should be also called out is uh, Fred Savage. Like, if you want to talk about arcs in this movie, he starts out as, I want to play video games. I want to listen to your dumb book. And then later is like, well, I'd like murdered by pirates sounds okay. I guess I could listen to this, <laughs> but like, let's skip the kissing stuff. But then by the end he's like no don't skip like like he's clearly invested and you are able to track like that is also helps to tip you off like how invested you should be like you are able to track his progression through the story um uh as as your own as well where he goes from this is dumb i hate this to i'm completely bought in on this story which ends up being like again sure Deadpool will you know go, call back to that uh many years later when they do the PG-13 version of Deadpool 2 but but like for the most part like 
you don't think about Fred Savage that much, but I think he's actually ends up being a real, he ends up being a big surrogate for people watching this movie to track their emotional responses as the movie progresses. Oh, totally. Uh, it's so easy to kind of give short shrift to the kid, right? Cause he's the, just the conduit from which you tell the story. But uh, having a 12-year-old boy who is obsessed with video games and, you know, would prefer to do that than visit with his grandparents, uh, I, I, I can tell you full on, Fred Savage nails it. <laughs> he nails what it's like when you're there. You just want to sit and play your dumb game, but now grandpa's over and you got to pay attention to him. And it, it's, it's, it's done perfectly. And just the way that right to your, I, I, I can't add anything to it. He is the gauge that we buy into the film and uh it's it's a it's a small performance but without fred savage doing what he does you don't get the payoff and you don't get the arc at the end it's so it, it it's essential like almost everyone else is in this movie christopher guest and kind of carrie always accepting and we even talk about robin wright this is her de- debut introducing robert robin wright as princess buttercup i mean an actress who is phenomenal and rightly you know, up, applauded now. Uh, she's, she's fine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she's fine. <laughs> I, I'll say that. I mean, I typically point to Natalie Portman as like my first uh, movie crush from episode one. Um, but I mean, but, but Robin Wright probably deserves a spot there too. I think she, and, and she is able to, you know, she's able to hold her own with uh, all of the, like, again, she's not a, She's not someone who shrinks away from anything. She she's able to hold her own with the various people in her life, and um, and as like, as for Robin Wright herself, like time has only been kind to her. <laughs> like her her um, like her, even if she's not someone who's doing a ton of like featured roles, like uh, she's doesn't get as as much high profile stuff or whatever. But like she was great and Unbreakable. Um, during the years that we saw House of Cards before we realized what a piece of shit uh what's his face was like she was awesome like she she was she was incredible in the House of Cards show love Robin Wright thumbs up over here yep absolutely all right that's going to wrap it up for our second movie of the episode and we'll move into our last segment which is film recommendations uh along the lines of uh comfort movies uh I'm going to recommend 1981's Condor Man, uh, which is a Disney film, which is, in my experience, very hard to find these days. It is not a well-known movie, but it happens to be one of those movies, like a lot of the movies we've talked about recently, where I it was taped off of TV one time and just a movie that we would watch repeatedly. It is a movie about a, uh, a comic book artist who whose designs for his spy comic uh, intrigue the government. And so they basically commission him to say, we'll make all of the gadgets you wrote about in your spy comic, but we need you to be a, a spy for us for reasons that I don't remember, to be honest. It's been a long time. But uh, I do reserve the right to pick this if we ever do a live-action Disney episode. <laughs> um, but You got it. Uh, and this is this is something that... I think like what a lot of people put as their comfort movies are not necessarily movies that are good um, or the best, uh, but one that I, uh, 
uh, I could watch forever. And it has Oliver Reed in it as the big Russian bad guy. Uh, so that's a lot of fun too. So how bad can it be if you got Oliver Reed in your movie? I'm, I'm, I'm always down for some Oliver Reed. I don't know if anyone talks about Oliver Reed these days, but that man was incredibly good looking. It is ridiculous. <laughs> yes, he was. He is a uh, handsome man. If, if we ever get around to doing Hammer films, uh, I I will be bringing him up. Excellent. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll tease that for a potential future episode as well. How about you, Chris? What do you got for uh, a recommendation for us today? Yeah, so this is an interesting... Uh, I'm going to recommend a series, but not everything in this series. So um, one of the things that we've been doing for our, our kind of isolation quarantine is uh, we've been doing a movie a night for the the whole family, my, my wife and my son. And now that my son is um, getting to be a, a little bit older, he'll be 13 in a couple of weeks. We're finally able to start watching kind of more adult films and he's started to get the appetite for it, P- particularly um, action and espionage and, and spy stuff. He really seems to have taken a liking to it. So last week over the course of six days, we watched every single mission impossible possible film. Uh, so that's my recommendation. Um, although I can't unequivocally recommend the entire series because I can now tell you having, having watched two again, um, two is atrocious in ways that I warrant its own episode (laughs) for how bad it truly is. Oh, come Um, on. Don't you like the limp biscuit? Uh, it, no, I don't like the Limp Biscuit, and I don't like the amount of weird sex and posturing that's in the film, uh, nor do I like that the opening credits literally just say, produced by Tom Cruise, directed by John Woo, Mission Impossible 2. Those are the credits. That's it. <laughs> it is literally a vanity project that is atrocious. However, uh, every other film, I think, is Fantastic. Uh, and specifically, I'll note uh, for our buddy Eric, who has been on the show before, he did the Marx Brothers episode with us. We were recently talking about J.J. Abrams uh, with uh, uh, in regards to the Star Wars films, and he had made mention about J.J. Abrams kind of being a, an atrocious director. Um, I would argue, sir, that Mission Impossible 3 is a fantastic film and probably the best film that J.J. Abrams has ever directed. Uh, it's not my favorite uh, by a long shot of the series, but the series was really, really fun. Uh, Tom Cruise, again, a very problematic person that you have to kind of think through when you watch these films. Um, uh, so when we did watch these films, we kind of talked to my son a little bit about, hey, look, so there's this guy, he's, here's what's going on here. You just need to realize it, but, you know, enjoy the film on its merits because it's not pushing any weird Scientology, you know, mumbo jumbo. Um, and it was surprisingly, uh, surprisingly good for him. He really enjoyed, he got the sense of kind of the moral choices there. loved the action and, uh, man, even fallout, which uh, I don't know how people thought about it, but watching it right on the heels of rogue nation, uh, as kind of a, a two part massive movie, it was great. Loved it. Can't recommend it enough. Fallout's the one that starts with them doing the fake nukes going off. Uh, is that the... Yes, that's okay. Fallout, yeah. I was so turned off by the rug pulling of that moment that even though the rest of the movie, you know, very impressive, I actually is still stuck on that. I was like, <laughs> I felt so distasteful about it but yes i generally like the mission impossible movies well chris i think that's going to do it for us this evening thank you so much again as always uh you can i don't know 
I, I put my Twitter account on private. Just to, this is a weird time. So don't follow me, I guess, or do. If you can track me down, that's fine. But uh, I'll be honest. I am almost entirely not on Twitter anymore. So you could follow to read stuff from, I don't know, six months ago, I guess. Hey, you know what? Just watch a movie. Think of us when you do. That's that. That's all we need. That's all I need. Well, uh, we'll catch you next time. And uh, yeah, thanks again. See ya. See ya.